We're looking at the subject this morning, the joy of worship. If you look at your bulletin outline, the first thing we want to talk about is worship conduct. What do we do when we worship? You'll note firstly that God demands of His creatures that we worship Him and Him alone. You want some principles on worship, this is the first and foremost principle. The whole tension between Moses and Pharaoh over the release of the Israelites in Egypt from servitude had the worship of God as its core issue. Now we're going to share some scriptures to show that. When Moses and Aaron first returned to Egypt, they went to the Israelite camp and they presented their credentials. Israelites didn't know Moses and Aaron, so they presented their credentials. They did some signs and wonders. And we are told in Exodus 4, verse 31, and they, the Israelites, they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Exodus 4, verse 31. Incidentally, that's exactly what the word worship means. It doesn't matter if you're looking at the Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament scriptures or the Greek word used in the New Testament scriptures. Both words mean the same thing. They mean to bow down, do submission before God. Now the very next verse states, after this incident where Moses introduced themselves, it says, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or He may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get back to work. Exodus 5, the first four verses. So, Needless to say, things didn't go too well in the first confrontation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. They went and presented their case, let my people go. God says, let them go. They want to go out and have a religious festival, time of worship in the desert. And Pharaoh retorts, I don't know your God, and I'm not going to listen to your God. Get back to work. And it was this first confrontation with Pharaoh about the Israelites being released, that they might worship in the desert, which resulted in Pharaoh saying to his taskmasters, You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. Exodus 5, verses 7 through 9. And of course, the implication was that Moses and Aaron were lying. Now, nothing's going to happen to us. You know, just you know, work them hard. The expression used in our day is doubling down, which means... That rather than Pharaoh complying with God's command to release his people from servitude, that they might worship him, he doubled their trouble and he doubled his resolve not to let them go by intensifying the ardor of their labor. And his reasoning was something like this. Work them so hard. Get them so tired. Get them so sore that they will not listen to anything that Moses and Aaron have to say. Which, by the way, is just a pack of lies. Now, if you know the history here, 
the Israelites did go back to Moses and Aaron after this incident. And you know, they are working very hard now. And they say, you know, you didn't help us, guys. Look what, look what you did. Look what you brought upon us. Pharaoh now has taken away the straw. We've got to meet the same quota. He's working us to death. And uh, the implication is, if, if that's your idea of deliverance, please spare us your idea of deliverance because we're in bigger trouble. Now, from this point on, the whole uh, institution of the multiple plagues sending against Egypt centered around Pharaoh's reluctance to release the Israelites to worship God in the wilderness. Let me read a couple of these texts for you, get a flavor for it. In Exodus 7, verse 16, Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to, may, to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you, Pharaoh, have not listened. Exodus 7, verse 16. Well, he didn't listen there either. And the result was that the Nile was turned to blood and all the fish died and there was a great stench and people didn't have fresh uh, uh, fish to eat. Reading again in chapter 8, the next chapter, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. See, every time you got that phrase. And if you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. And we read that the frogs came. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your officials and onto your people and into your ovens and into your kneading troughs. Exodus 8, verse 3. Well, he didn't let them go and all of that uh, happened. Or one more text here in Exodus 8, verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water. And say to him, this is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. And if you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. Exodus 8, verse 20 and 21. Now I could read on and on and on, but that you, you see the pattern here. Every time Moses goes and cons, confronts Pharaoh, with regard to letting Israel go, he says that my people may worship me in, in the wilderness. And each time, Pharaoh, well, sometimes he says, okay, I'll let him go. And later on he does that. Okay, I'll let him go. And then he goes back on his word. But each time he does not let them go. He just kind of digs in. Now, all of this, you see, continued throughout the ten plagues. The premise for Pharaoh to free the Israelites was always that they may worship me. And the refusal of Pharaoh to comply was his premise, who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5 verse 2. So we got this battle of the wills going on, don't we? Moses is giving the word of God, let my people go that they may worship. And Pharaoh's coming back, I don't know the Lord and I'm not going to listen to him. But with each, here's, here's the point, with each successive plague, Pharaoh's learning curve was being reduced. What he didn't know about the Lord, he was learning the hard way. Right up until the last plague in which God sent the death angel to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron we read, and commanded. Now notice this. He summoned Moses and Aaron and commanded, Up! Leave my people, you and all of the Israelites. Go! Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said. Go! And also, bless me. Does God know how to humble kings? Smart Alex? People that, I don't know the Lord and I'm not going to obey Him. Exodus 12, 31, 32. 
And when they exited Egypt, the Egyptians gave them gold and silver and clothing and food to hasten them on their way. And the scripture says the Israelites plundered Egypt, just as though they had gone in there with an army of soldiers with swords and spears and all of those kind of things. And then, you know, to the victor belongs the spoil. It's just as though that had happened, but that's not the way it happened. God made the Egyptians' hearts favorably disposed. Here, take this. Oh, you need some jewelry? Take this. Oh, I have some gold stashed over here. Take this. Just go, please. Go, go. Get out of our country. Yeah, because they had a great burial problem that day. All the firstborn of all the families of Egypt lie dead. Even of the animals lie dead. They had to bury all of those dead carcasses. And they were so scared and so frightened. You know, if we, if we hang on to these Israelites, if we refuse to let them go and worship their God, what will their God do to us next? Go, get out. And they did. The second principle here is not only does God command us to worship Him and Him alone, the second principle is that we cannot worship God in Egypt. There are two reasons for this. In the actual day, God had told Moses, and I'm reading for you, this is from Exodus 3, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Exodus 3 verse 12. What mountain? Exodus 3 verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And it was there, you remember, that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And so this mountain was already holy ground, sanctified by the presence of God Himself, where God is, holiness is. And so that is why the, the call was always, let my people go that they may go out into the wilderness and worship me. Now that's the first reason why they... You, you could say, well, why can't they just stay in Egypt and worship God there? This is the first reason. The second reason is this, that God called Israel out of Egypt to worship Him. Then, as well as later, Egypt, in the prophetic writings, stands for, stood for, the world. Now think about this. Before servitude, before servitude, the Israelites lived in the province of Goshen in Egypt, of which we read, The land of Egypt is before you, Pharaoh's talking to Joseph, The land of Egypt is before you, settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. Genesis 47 and verse 6. Not Shantytown. Not hobo station by the railroad tracks. Let them live in Goshen, the best part of the land. So Joseph, I'm reading scripture. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land. Notice the next statement. The district of Ramses as Pharaoh Directed. Guess where the Israelites were living? They were living where the palace was. They were living where the Pharaoh lived. Naturally, he chose the best part to set up his homestead. And that's where the Israelites set up theirs. If you've ever seen the Egyptian exhibits that sometimes tour the United States in our various museums, you will recall how opulent the Egyptian culture was richly bedecked in gold and silver, precious stones, intricate tapestries and the like. Everything the world adores and values without God, 
was there in Egypt, there in Goshen. Joshua said, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 14. Yeah, it was rich in all those things, but you see it was also rich in something else. It was rich in idolatry. Worship of God, of the false gods of the day. Stephen, in his sermon to the Jews of his day in Acts 7, rehearsed God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But he pointed out as well, Our fathers refused to obey Him. Instead, they rejected Him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Acts 7, verse 39 and 40. So they were out of Egypt, but Egypt was in them, in their hearts. The question to ask ourselves is this, have we left Egypt? Or having left in the past, have we now returned? The allurements of the world are material, and they are sensual, and they are appealing, and they are powerful. And we may think that we have entered the promised land, but maybe we have not. Abraham and his immediate family did not view the world as their home. Why not? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is gone. Hebrews 11 verse 10. Or again, all these people were still living by faith when they died and they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Now if they had been thinking of the country they had left, and, you know, Ur, Egypt, whatever, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16. And that city He has prepared is not down here on terra firma. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. So what he is saying here, and what the writer is saying, is Ur of the Chaldees was not that country. Egypt was not that country. Palestine was not, is not that country. Assyria, Babylon were not those countries. And I say it forcefully, America is not that country. And yet how many professing Christians have come out of Egypt and yet have since gone back into the world. Their profession was bogus. They, may I ask, we maybe, are immersed in the culture instead of being a light and a witness to the culture. Our church should be full of worshipers of God, but instead people are worshipers at the temples of other gods. Temples like commerce, they're out shopping this morning. Pleasure, they're at the movies. Personal family outings and so on. Some have to go to work. Entertainment. All the tentacles of the world's octopus reach out to hold us fast. Yet it's so subtle, so seemingly natural and innocent that we're not frightened anymore by the depth of sin to which the sea creature drags us. When we go to the book of Revelation, John talks about the destruction of Babylon. I'm going to read this text to you. Just think of, ask yourself if this might sound just a teensy weensy bit like America. Here's what it says. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Whoa, whoa, oh great city, oh Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. 
cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory and costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cargoes of cinnamon and spice of incense, myrrh, and frankincense. No one buys their things anymore. Flat panel TVs and MP3 players and cell phones and iPads. He goes on, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep and horses and carriages. What about horseless carriages? Oh, got to have that super duper car, that boss truck. And bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Revelation 18. Verse 10 and following. And brethren, our country with a $16 million debt and an administration that's going to add trillions more and trillions more is on a breakneck speed to bankruptcy, chaos and riots like we have seen in Italy, Spain, and Greece in the European continent. Verse 20 of this text charges believers... Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Well, there's a perspective we don't normally have, is it? The downfall of all of this commerce. And God is saying, you need to rejoice about that. These are the people that, you know, they have persecuted you. Who are these who can rejoice at the destruction of Babylon? Verse 4 and 5. Answers. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. That's how you're spared. You come out of her. You come out of the world. You come out of Egypt. You come out of Babylon before the judgment falls. I can say it this way. If you're still a part of Babylon when judgment comes, you will perish no matter what your profession of faith. Israel, whose heart was more in Egypt than in the promised land, rejected Moses disobeyed God, turned back into the wilderness from which they came. None of that whole generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, ever entered the promised land because they were still unbelievers when it came to God and lovers of Egypt in their hearts. They worship lesser things and they reap the judgment of God. God is looking for what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. The time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23 and 24. He says the worship must be in truth by His Holy Spirit. Else it's just as Jesus told the Pharisees. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed 
and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Matthew 23, verse 25 and 26. And what he was accusing the Pharisees of is being all absorbed in externals. You think because you take a bath and wash the outside of the cup and the dishes and so forth that everything's just clean. But in your heart you're full of greed. You see, you're loving Babylon. You're in love with the world. Now we live in the world, but the world doesn't need to live in us. That is the point. And that's why it says here, that Israel turned back to Egypt in their hearts. They never did go all the way back to the physical land of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died off. But, boy, that's where their heart was. So I'm asking the same of us today. Where is our heart when it comes to the world? Now that brings, secondly, then, to the subject of the joy of worshiping God. And for this, you've got to go to Daniel 3, which is our second text, dealing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Babylon, may I say, of Nebuchadnezzar's day. Now, we read about Babylon in Revelation, and that's the figurative aspect, the allegorical aspect, stands for the world and all of its power and wealth and might and glitter and all of that. But here's the real physical Babylon, which is the type of the one we found in Revelation. How are we going to have the joy of worshiping God? Well, these three Hebrew uh, brothers in the faith uh, had their faith put to the test. So how were they going to handle worshiping God in a pagan culture? Does that sound familiar? This is exactly where we're at, folks. Trying to worship God in a pagan, God-hating culture. Firstly, the joy of worshiping God is found in the spiritual discernment to recognize idolatry. Now, that might seem like a little thing, but that's a major thing. Because most people in our culture, talk about worshiping God, loving God, and so forth, but they have no discernment that the God they're out to worship is this Babylon, this great city, full of all the baubles and twinkle lights and all of that. As we read this text, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar erected an image of gold 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, in the plain of Dura of the province of Babylon and gathered all of his officials to the site and then he made this proclamation. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O people, nations, men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Daniel 3, verses 4 through 6. Boy, talk about government intrusion into the religious beliefs and practices of its people. Nebuchadnezzar was using all the power of his office to coerce his people to worship what he himself had set up and approved. It was his attempt at establishing a state religion that left no leeway for personal conscience and personal conviction. And by the way, this is the first time and won't be the last time. We have had this all throughout history. And that's why the pilgrims fled England and so forth because of a state religion that was being imposed upon them by the government saying, you will worship this way. And they said, no, we're not. Well, then you're going to be persecuted. And the man we're studying on Sunday night, Mr. Bunyan, and his writing of Pilgrim's Progress, 
spent 16 years in Bedford Prison because he would not knuckle under and worship as the Anglican Church had dictated. There's no leeway. Say, well, you know, I, I, I have a personal conviction against. Too bad. Too bad. You will worship my image or you will die. There it is. There was no ambiguity here. There was no loophole. There was no concession. Obamacare came under the attack of the Catholic Church when Cardinal Dolan of New York, leading the resistance along with other bishops across the country, began to protest particular aspects of the health care provision. But in an article on Christianity.com, here's what I read. Wheaton College has filed a lawsuit along the, alongside the Catholic University of America in the D.C. District Court opposing the Health and Human Services Preventive Services Mandate. Administrators of the leading evangelical liberal arts institution located in Illinois contend the mandate forces both institutions to violate their deeply held religious beliefs by providing access to abortion-causing drugs or paying a severe fine. Whoa! You will worship the way we tell you to worship or you're going to be persecuted. goes on. Wheaton College and other distinctively Christian institutions are faced with a clear and present threat to our religious liberty, says Wheaton College President Dr. Philip Reichen. And on it goes. Government intrusion into the free conscience of worshiping God and saying, you will worship this way or into the furnace you go. And brethren, this is just the tip of the iceberg. One of the joys of worshiping God is the ability to recognize when the secular government tries to divest us of that freedom by sheer force of legislation and government intrusion, intrusion which violates not only the First Amendment, but our conscience as well. A 90-foot st statue on the plains of Dura is pretty obvious idolatry. So that's obvious. There it is. Whoa, 90 feet. One tenant in the Obamacare mandate may seem an insignificant regulation, but for the discerning, it is the camel's nose and the flap of the tent with the greater presence just waiting to happen. Little intrusion into our freedom of worship. Are we going to tolerate that? Are we going to protest and fight? If we're worshiping God, we're going to have the discernment to know Hey, this is idolatry. You know, if the government is telling us it's establishing a religion which is a violation of our own constitution. So, there is this joy of having spiritual discernment because guess what? The bulk of humanity in America doesn't have this discernment. They don't get it. They say, oh, you Christians. We don't like you Christians anyway. So it doesn't bother us that you don't that you have to give out abortifacients and things of that nature. Virtually one-tenth of all health care provided in the United States is done through Catholic hospitals. One-tenth. That's a lot of hospitals, folks. Secondly, we have the spiritual, the joy of spiritual fortitude not to go along with the crowd. We're not anarchists, though I'm sure we'll be branded as such. But Daniel's three friends were singled out by the Babylonian officials of Nebuchadnezzar's administration. Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You know, this is the old flattery. You have issued a decree that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews 
whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Daniel 3, verse 8 and following. What is the significance about this is that this protest made by the astrologers was after, after an initial blast of the musical instruments signaling the decree to worship the idol. And verse 7 says, Therefore, as soon as they, the people, all the people, heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down, worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Daniel 3, verse 7. Poor sheep being led to the slaughter. Not knowing, not caring that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, verse 31. Jesus put it this way. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. How absolutely stunning it must have been to see all the peoples, nations, men of every language fall to the ground to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image and then see out over the terrain three small framed Jews still standing erect amidst the prostrate throng and unafraid. Do I see some people standing out there? Is, didn't I say everybody had to be on the ground? There they stood. Three little midgets against an empire, a godless empire. Is your resolve such that you will stand to worship God against the trend of the crowd who have sold their soul to the devil for some temporary peace of mind? It really is only temporary because the edicts of the world today will encroach further on your faith tomorrow. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It ain't going to get better, folks. Say, boy, you're sure a preacher of gloom and doom this morning. Well, I'm trying to enlighten you to what's coming. We are told in the book what's coming. And we need to be ready for it in our hearts and in our souls because the pistol's going to be put to your head. And you're going to be given the option of bowing to the government intrusion of your faith or standing for Christ. The third joy in worship is found in the spiritual strength not to comply with evil edicts of influential men. Nebuchadnezzar was not one to be dismissed lightly. If you know anything about him. He had sent his armies into Judah. He had laid siege onto Jerusalem. He had attacked it. He had leveled it to the ground. The scripture says not one stone stood upon another after he was through. He slaughtered hundreds of Jews in that city and took captive the rest, among whom were Daniel and these three guys that we're studying this morning. And then he conscripted them and brought them into his service which they served him well, so long as he did not intrude into their worship of God. Zedekiah, the king, 
of Jerusalem and Judah at that time was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and his sons were executed before his very eyes and then his own eyes were put out. He was blinded and he was led away in humiliation as a beaten prisoner of war. This is Nebuchadnezzar. You don't fool with this guy. What then would Nebuchadnezzar do to these three defiant Hebrew servants? Well, he tried to be Mr. Magnanimous. Here's what happened. He gave them a, a second chance. Yeah, guys, maybe, maybe you boys didn't understand, you know, the first, you know, what the herald had said. Maybe you thought you were excluded in some way. So Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that... You do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Very good. But if you do not worship it, see this is an issue of worship. If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Daniel 3, verse 14 and 15. You talk about throwing down the gauntlet. You talk about the contest. See, the original order was issued from the lips of a herald. A herald said to all the people, you know, commanded them what they were to do. But this time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are summoned to a face-to-face -face confrontation with the king himself. You know, this is what happens. If you have the spiritual fortitude not to go along with the crowd, the next thing that happens is the enemy will bring out the big guns with the intent that you and I can be intimidated to knuckle under to such intimidation by the sheer magnitude of their authority before whom we must give an account. Forget the herald, this is the king speaking. And I mean business. You're going to bow or you're going to burn. And don't you just love their response? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Daniel 3, verse 16 through 18. You know, at times you are confronted with a, a decision that just doesn't seem right. And the party making the proposition will say something like this. Well, you know, um, take a little time to think it over. Uh, no need to give me your answer right now. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk later. But these three Hebrew men didn't have to think it over. They knew God. They knew God's will concerning idolatry. And king or no, or longer time or no, would make no difference in their decision. They had the joy of knowing their minds and being at peace with their defiance of the king's wicked edict. You know, sin doesn't get sweeter with time. Just think about it. You know, just chill out a little. No, rather it becomes more rank and it begins to stink. You say, yeah, but what did it get them? I mean, <laughs> look at the text passage. Nebuchadnezzar stoked the furnace seven times hotter than usual and he cast the men into it to be burned alive. That's what their protest got them. Well, that brings us to the fourth joy of worship. And that is the ability to give a good confession or testimony for your faith no matter what. 
We read then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and prefects and governors and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. Daniel 3, 24 through. And you say, yes, pastor, but it doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> you know, sometimes God's people are killed. That's true. That's true. And do you know that these three Hebrew men considered that? We weren't real sure which way this is going to go. Let me read it for you. The God we serve is able. He, he's able to save us from it, the furnace. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. You know, one way or the other. Think about that. But even, here it is, even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So they didn't consider that. Maybe they said to one another, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, you know, we may not come out of this. This may be it, boys. He said, that's all right. That is all right. He will rescue us from your hand, O king. We'll either die and go and be with him, or he will do something miraculous in the here and now. In the case of Paul, before Emperor Nero, he writes to Timothy, and here's what he writes. I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me Nero's execution sword. Is that what he said? No. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8. And if you know your history, you know that Paul was beheaded by Nero's execution squad in A.D. 68. And so began a great purge of the apostles by Nero, who killed a number of other ones, and they had to flee for their lives. There is joy and peace, brethren, for those who worship God that defies the conventional worries and fears of those who worship lesser things. Nebuchadnezzar's faith was in a 90-foot image of his own construction. Big, bold, impressive, intimidating to all, except to three Hebrew children who knew and loved the true God of heaven. Go ahead and kill us. That's the way we're going to go. We'll still be with God. Do you know this God? When the fires of hell lap at your feet, will you fear men or will you fear God? Today's your hour of faith. Today's the time for you to turn from your sins and believe in that Son of God who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their Savior then and your Savior now if you will have Him. And if you will but repent of your sins and believe.
One thing about Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I don't think he ever became a true believer in, in God, but what, what he did after this whole incident is he tur turns his whole empire and he makes a total 180 degree reversal. He makes God the most high of the Hebrew children to be the God of, their, of his nation and <laughs> warns anybody if they don't worship that God, they're going to get killed. He just does a 180. It was such a stupendous miracle on that day. We need to see miracles like that today. We need to see the miracle of the new birth. We need to see God pour out His Spirit upon the dead hearts that have no discernment. They'd sell God down the river in a heartbeat if it got into their head. Oh yeah, okay, okay. I'm bowing. I'm knuckling under rather than standing for God. Let us be men and women of faith. May God give us that faith if we don't have it. Lord, save whom you will this day. Show us something of the joy of worshiping you. One thing we have, the great thing we have, is this, this peace, of, peace of heart and peace of mind. There's no government bigger than God. In, um, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, he was big. He was huge. Babylon was not a, a little province. It wasn't a little kingdom ruled by a teensy-weensy potentate. This man ruled the world of his day. Yet three humble Hebrew children defied his authority because he commanded them to do that which was contrary to the word of God, contrary to conscience, con contrary to true worship. And Lord, you intervened. How our country needs to get this conscience back. Where will they get it? They'll get it from us as we proclaim the gospel of Christ, not just from this pulpit, but in our individual lives and in our witness day to day so that they can see a real and true faith that is not just concerned about greed and government handouts and all of these things that are used to threaten us, reprisals and the like, if we don't knuckle under. Lord, show us to be genuine, genuine people of faith. For the glory of Christ and for our own good, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.